Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, today's episode is about something I know next to nothing about. Despite watching a few Spider-Man and Avenger movies, the world of comic book superheroes is a mystery to me. But even knowing next to nothing about them, I do know that grief is never far from a superhero storyline. Think of Batman, also known as Bruce Wayne. Both of his parents were killed when he was a young child. Superman's parents were killed when their planet was destroyed, mere moments after launching him into space. In Spider-Man, his parents both died, along with his uncle who was murdered. If you Google which superheroes are orphans, and yes, I did that, the resulting list is long. So while I only know a little more now about superheroes than I did moments before that Google search, today's guest knows a lot about them, and a lot about their narratives around grief. Dr. Jill Harrington is a therapist, professor, grief educator, writer, and consultant. She's also a huge fan of superheroes. So much so that she co-edited a new book, Superhero Grief, The Transformative Power of Loss. Dr. Jill's hope for this book is to bring superheroes into the limelight of grief support, offering a cross-generational, cross-cultural way to help all of us become more grief-informed. So even if you, like me, know next to nothing about superheroes, there's something in this conversation for you. Dr. Jill and I talk about the origins of her love of superheroes, how she started to make a professional connection between superhero narratives and supporting those in grief, and how the book is meant for both professionals and those who are grieving. Dr. Jill Harrington, thank you so much for joining me today on Grief Out Loud. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Thanks so much, Jen. I'm really honored to be here and happy to talk about my work on superhero grief, as well as being the company of those at the Dougie Center. I just realized that for over 20 years, I've been providing the Dougie Center as a resource for children and grieving families. So thank you so much for having me here today. Yeah, and I know we have a lot to talk about with your book, Superhero Grief, The Transformative Power of Loss, and about the work that you do with families. Uh, But we always like on Grief Out Loud to kind of start with the personal, to get connected to maybe what brings us to this work or what grounds us in this work. And your initial window into the connection between the superhero narrative and grief was really a personal one when your sister was ill. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure, sure. I grew up in New York, the greater New York area. I was born in Queens. My dad was from the Bronx. My mom was from Queens. So I kind of grew up in the epicenter during the 70s of the origin, like sort of the, the, the burgeoning of you know, superheroes and comics. You know, back in the day, you had like Saturday morning TV, which you worked really hard all week to kind of get that privilege <laughs> to watch Saturday morning TV. We had about four channels, you know, you had CBS, NBC, and ABC, and then PBS maybe, and the ubiquitous kind of U channel. I never really found what was on the U channel. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's just all the stuff on the U channel. And then we had, you know, comics and 
I was there in 1977 with my grandfather when we watched actually Star Wars premiere. And we had lots of, of great after show, like we'd come home and watch TV, you know, some of the shows after school in between the last soap opera and the news were you know, Batman and Wonder Woman and the $6 million man. So when I was 12 years old and my sister was 14, um, my sister, unfortunately, in her freshman year of high school, had come down with double pneumonia and mononucleosis and her lung had actually collapsed. So it became life-threatening and she was hospitalized at Long Island Schneider, um, at Long Island Jewish Schneider Children's Hospital. She was there for about almost um, a month and a half to two months. And in that time, her um, condition was very, very, very tenuous. And I wasn't able to visit her at that time. Like it was really, really scary for me um, being her sister. I was about 12 years old. We're about two, two and a half years apart. It was during this time where, you know, you had to be like 16 to go on the unit. There was a lot of trauma associated with my sister being in the hospital. Like there was that separation anxiety. There was that distress. There was, you know, being the sister at home that was writing notes and letters to her sister that was in the hospital. And you didn't know if you were gonna get bad news the next day, like living on pins and needles. It was a very traumatic experience for my sister and I, and not knowing if she was going to recover from, I believe at the time was sort of the, the fifth or sixth worst case of pneumonia, double pneumonia and mono in New York state. My mom had worked with a woman named Doris and you know, sort of out of the shadows, Doris revealed a secret identity that none of us knew she had. She had spoken to her brother who had come into town from California and told him about these really difficult circumstances that my family was going through and these two really scared children. And her brother made us, he was a cartoonist and he made us cartoon cells one that said best wishes and one for a speedy recovery. And basically out of the shadows came the co-creator of Batman. So this was uh, pictures drawn by Bob Kane for my sister and I. Neither he or Doris had to like reveal their, especially Doris didn't have to reveal her secret identity that she was the sister of Bob Kane. And just out of a complete heroic random act of kindness, made these two extraordinarily encouraging cells or photos for these two kids that were under these really difficult and traumatic circumstances. I have Batman and Robin in my home and she has the Catwoman portrait in her home. And we were just, we had been, you know, both kids born in Queens, New York. We, we love Spider-Man, we love Captain America, but we always loved the Batman because Batman represents everything New York. You know, Gotham is a metaphor for New York and New York City. And so my sister and I were both tremendous superhero fans. They're very central to our lives and they were a big part of our life. Thankfully, my sister recovered, has a family of her own, still lives on Long Island. And we both have these, these portraits in our house to remind us of these very heroic qualities that us humans should emulate. And I think about how, you know, now sitting where you are in your work as a clinician, as a writer, as a researcher of superhero narratives, of what that means looking back. But I just wonder if you 
can remember being 12 and like what that drawing meant to you, looking at it, having it while your sister was still in the hospital? I do reflect on it now as someone who's middle age. <laughs> I'm not going to, re- I am not going to reveal my secret age identity to you, Jana. I just want to do that because I'm still in a bit of uh, super denial about that. <laughs> but I look back on it now and I just think to myself that that 12 year old mind, I remember getting those pictures because this is right before like Batman was doing, they were doing the first movie on Batman and, I look back upon that. I'm like, he didn't, he didn't have to actually do that. There was nothing that was compelling him to do that. It was just for the, the greater good of these two kids to provide a little hope, to provide that kind of bat signal, what the bat signal represents, to summon the heroes. And I think that is the lasting impression that out, out of the shadows come these heroes to the bereaved and those who are under serious illness and loss. And he was one of them. So we we go from this place of being 12 and having this amazing heroic act of kindness, the bat signal of the photo of the, the picture that was created. And now you're a clinician and you've just released this book all about the superhero narrative and the, and the transformative power of loss. And when did you start to make a more professional connection between supporting those who are grieving or facing the end of their life and the power of a superhero narrative? I think the professional connection began. I started off in this field as an oncology social worker many years ago. We often saw the superhero archetype used in the cancer world, whether that was the patient themselves trying to lean on those qualities of superheroes, or I don't know the person's name. There's an amazing police, a policeman down in Texas that dresses up as a superhero and visits kids in the hospital. Um, one of the um, patients I had a long time ago had a, who was in his thirties and was having a bone marrow transplant. One of the companies he worked for sent a superhero in costume to the hospital to provide him some archetypes of strength and hope. So these are characters in which we look to these heroic figures to help us to understand the phenomenons around the world. And some of those phenomenons have been war and death and trauma, the things that really challenge us in our human existence. And yes, the superhero does in a way have these superpowers, but they're not inoculated from loss and grief and pain. I think I began seeing that really in my professional career 20 something plus years ago and working in oncology. Then really afterwards, I would say it became much more illuminative to me when I was working on Long Island right after graduate school and 9-11 happened. I was working at a child and family agency in Freeport, New York, and we were a Project Liberty Center. We were seeing children and other um, adults affected by 9-11, and some of that could have been affected by either surviving 9-11 or having lost a family member. And I still remember to this day, it's as vivid, it's crystal clear, I could see it as clear as my vision of a little young boy walking through my office because he was coming to see me because his uncle had been a firefighter and he died. In, in the trade center and he was wearing a Batman t-shirt. I looked at his t-shirt and I said to him, I'm like, wow, you like Batman? I'm like, 
tell me why you like Batman. And he started telling me the story of how he knew that Batman's parents had been killed and his uncle had been killed. And so we started making all these connections using sort of Batman as a example to him of a kid who lost really important close people in his life at a young age who were killed in an instant suddenly and very traumatically and how Batman went through this very difficult journey for himself. And there were times when he had a lot of rage and anger and he was confused and, you know, was trying to figure out how to make sense of this horrific loss, but make some meaning. He came to a decisional point for himself to, to really seek to not revenge, but to sort of avenge in a way to help the greater good. The, the child knew this story and it was really a therapeutic jumping point for us to then work together with his grief. And that was really the first time I would say I became very enlightened to the power of superheroes in bereavement work. And then after that, I'd been following, I have a son with autism, my son, Alex, Alexander. I call him my Drax the Destroyer. <laughs> when you're a parent of a child with autism, you try to find any way to communicate with your child. And for us, it was really through film and it was through superhero films that he absolutely loved and Godzilla films, which he absolutely loves. And so this became a language to which I could speak to him, having suffered in our own lives, serial losses at a very young, young age. By the time he was 15, he lost his dad suddenly, then he lost his grandmother on his dad's side, then he lost his caretaker that we had a babysitter that lived with us for five years. She died at 25 of leukemia the same summer my dad died. And then my grandmother, his grandmother, my mother died. So by the age of 15, he had five significant major losses. And, you know, having autism, you know, perseverating on the pain of loss and not really understanding it. And so these were ways that I could communicate with him. And he particularly loved the arrow and he loves Batman. So I would use teachable moments in these movies to help him see where superheroes also went through the pain and the suffering and the indecision and the rage and sometimes the, the not wanting to, you know, to wanting to kind of lean into the bad and not lean into the good. And so these were all, talk and how they dealt with adversity. And it wasn't always clean, neat. It was complex and flawed. And so these movies gave me the ability to help my own son and my daughter, because it became a family affair, to help give us the language to talk about loss. We have always been curious as human beings about our capacity to survive life, but also our capacity to survive loss. Because if we weren't able to survive loss somehow. None of us would be sitting here even talking today. I know you've written about the themes of annihilation and domination in superhero movies and comics and narratives. And as you were talking, I was also thinking about how when loss comes into our life, there's a time period of survival. And in superhero narrative, there's a time of vengeance 
or a vengeance. And there's also this movement into a recognition of contribution, these places in our grief that we go. And I wondered, you know, I can see how kids would be like, yeah, Batman or Superman, or like they could connect in that way. But how do you see this work playing out with adults? The mom that I'm working with right now, whose son died by suicide 20 years old, about seven or eight months ago. And as she has been closing out some of his things like bank accounts or other like school statements or other things, she made this insight that she felt like she needed to do something to keep her son in the universe because he was disappearing from the universe. And so we feel like in a lot of ways, loss annihilates the world we know. And then the domination part, to me, that really represents the domination of societal views about how we should grieve. These really inherently biased views with a dominant viewpoint that looks at, looks at our grief as pathological or somehow dysfunctional. And that you have these overarching, outdated, very deep systematic views of grief that are rooted in, in bias. They go back to the time when, you know, our, our, our culture was not a really death denying culture until like the industrial revolution. And then Freud came along and did quite a bit of damage to people by saying you had a, to do this work. You needed to return back to a baseline that was pre-loss. Like you had to get to a function, like your world never changed. And that you had to do this work really quickly to kind of get over your grief. And then you had to decoquette yourself from the person who died, which basically was close off that relationship. And in our, in our society was, and especially, especially egregious to widows and widowers, but particularly widows to women, that you needed to basically, after a year, everything was fine. You should be okay you could just at that point go on with your life that you needed to really close off that relationship to the person who died. That was unhealthy to have an enduring psychological connection to this person or to even feel like you were grieving a year after the person died. So we have these really dominant views. And, and again, most of our studies of the bereaved have been done on Caucasian women over the age of 55. And so you know, unfortunately, even in psychology, those of us who are thanatologists, sometimes we even argue among ourselves about what grief should look like. And grief is unique as the person who's experiencing it in the context of their loss. And so there are these dominant viewpoints. And so a lot of people also feel that societal pressure because they don't they don't know. They grew up thinking of these, you know, the, the state, like you have to go through these linear stages of grief and you know, you're not supposed to be grieving for too long. You should be grieving in a certain way. And so it really leads to a lot of disenfranchisement of the bereaved, a lot of marginalization of the bereaved. Those dominant kind of theories, that domination on how you should grieve, that's the proper way to grieve, I think really comes with very true with these superhero stories of annihilation. Like your, your world has been annihilated. And then all of a sudden you're dominating by these thoughts or behaviors or societal views that are kind of taking hold, trying to tell you what the way forward is. 
by their viewpoints. And when we move into this part of the superhero narrative of the transformation of the embracing maybe whatever power has come to light for these characters or how they're going to use that power for the greater good, that contribution. And I, I think about, as I was just reflecting what you said of like the domination is really about being dominated consciously or unconsciously by expectations for what we're supposed to do when someone in our life has died and how we're supposed to act and how we're supposed to think and how, for how long. But I also hear from folks that there can be this pressure because something's so life altering has happened that they now need to transform themselves into someone better, greater, more contributing. And I just wonder how do you support folks who maybe where the superhero narrative comes with like, I don't want to be Superman. I just want to be like living my life. And I want to be able to be okay with not doing anything special with this grief. So for me, when I work with those who are bereaved, first of all, I do a lot of psychoeducation with people because people come in with these, these viewpoints that have been dominated in more of our Western culture. And they come in kind of consciously or unconsciously having this in the background of their brains. Sort of like if you took your, your phone or your computer where there's apps running in the background. This is some of the background information that they're getting either implicitly or explicitly from the way they were raised or mainly in Western society that gives us about three days of bereavement leave and then wants to like rush you back to, to work. <laughs> I work with people who adults that put these expectations on themselves is by first of all, just providing a lot of psychoeducation. And, you know, that is done after my time is spent really creating a very humanistic open receiving atmosphere. People who come into grief counseling, grief support groups, or grief therapy, if they're coming because of a loss of someone they love, they're walking, it takes heroic courage to brush your teeth, brush your hair, put on clothes, and come to a stranger in your most heart-wrenching, vulnerable moment and to sit and talk about the death of somebody you love and how painful that is. So my job is basically at first to make sure that I'm being a human who connects with another human, who connects with them and acknowledges their pain, but also acknowledges their courage to walk through the door. I appreciate that you, in a sense, it's like, reframing what's heroic. I think sometimes we can get caught up in the idea that I have to radically change my life. I need to start a foundation. I need to make the world better for everybody. Like this is my heroicism after the death of this person. And that uh, being heroic can be showing up to a session to talk with you. It can be taking a shower. It can be returning that phone call that's been so hard to return, uh, that there's ways to tap into that heroicism in our, in our own lives and in our grief. And, you know, thinking a little bit about your, about your book, Superhero Grief, The Transformative Power of Loss. For listeners who are tuning in today, who would you say that book is for? Is it more for professionals or would you say it's a book that folks who are going through grief themselves, not the professionals, couldn't also be carrying their own grief stories? Um, but who's the main audience? Who, what inspired you to write? Who did you write it for? I should say. 
Well, that's like the million dollar question because I feel like those who are bereaved can find something through reading the book, but it's also for those who are clinicians or educators. I think there's a little bit of everything in there for each audience. So for the bereaved, for, clin for clinicians and for educators. So I wrote the book to kind of have that dynamic approach. There's, I think, uh, uh, for me, the, one of the favorite sections that I go to all the time, I actually started the book by thinking about post-traumatic growth because the two themes in this book are really about transformative grief and post-traumatic growth. And that section in the book that is written by, the introductory chapter is written by Dr. Melinda Moore, who is a bereaved suicide spouse herself, but also a clinical psychologist and an educator. And this was her doctoral work was on post-traumatic growth and suicide survivors. And she wrote the chapter on PTG, looking at superheroes. So I believe that the, the bereaved can find a bit about themselves in those personal stories, but also it can help them understand in reading some of the clinical chapters, it could actually help them understand sometimes their own grief. I recently had a, um, a veteran who lost his brother to suicide reach out to me and he wanted to acknowledge the chapter on, first of all, he's a veteran himself about grief leadership, the life with the lessons that we could learn from the life and story of the life and service of Captain America, which is um, something we're gonna be teaching in a couple of weeks from now on a webinar. And he wanted to say as a military leader who had to basically experience and cope with a lot of death on the battlefield, how that chapter really resonated with him. But then he also lost his brother to suicide. And in reading the chapter on Deadpool 2 and suicide after bereavement, he really felt it was very powerful in connecting to him, his feelings about feeling very suicidal after the loss of his brother. So I think even though the chapters are written, some of them for clinicians, and educators, I think that the bereaved can also really find pieces in those chapters um, that may apply to their own loss, their own story, their own journey, their own heroic journey through grief. Because you're absolutely right. Like superpowers are not grand and magnanimous. You know, the, the most, the strongest of all powers are not superpowers, they're human powers because we have no superpowers. And so we have to be able to tap into our humanity to find even sometimes the smallest of strength, which is the greatest of strength. I think I told you before about my mom who came, the, not my mom particularly, but a mother who came to see me several months after the suicide death of her son. And I will often say this to my clients, like there was no reason for her to get out of bed that day. It would have been easier. But she brushed her teeth got in front of a Zoom to talk to a stranger who was recommended by somebody else. And so I acknowledge that power. That is the largest of any power we can have, is sometimes just showing up and starting that journey. So given that this book really could be helpful for both clinicians and for folks who are not clinicians but are carrying their own grief stories, I'll link to the book in our show notes, but are there other ways that listeners could connect with you and your work? So we just opened up a website called www.superherogrief.com. So you could find me on Superhero Grief and my email is posted on there. So that's the best way to get in touch 
with the book and as well with me. If people are more interested, we're hoping to, to kind of grow the website a little bit more. My goal is to be, and when I really came up with the idea for this book, it's really mission oriented. And my mission is to make a much more grief informed society and superheroes are something that are cross-generational, they're cross-cultural, they have a lot of appeal to folks, popular appeal, pop culture appeal. And I think that they're, they're sort of a safe way to talk about, um, even though it seems very playful, we're talking about a very, very, very serious subject matter in life. And I think that film and movies, especially these superhero narratives, which are very popular and relatable and cross-generational and cross-cultural. I mean, you can go to somewhere in Siberia and probably find somebody with a Superman t-shirt. <laughs> um, I think everybody in the world knows about superheroes. So why not talk about their origin stories and relate it to, to our journeys through loss? Mm -hmm. And so to me, uh, the book is really about, I'm hoping with the website and the book to help create a justice league of grief. The book is also to introduce that ontology to the world. So I want to also create that justice league of that ontologists kind of coming out of the shadows to advocate for the bereaved as well as provide a community of care. Well, Dr. Jill, I'm grateful for your book and for your work and for your time today and, and having this conversation. And listeners, I will link to the book and also to the website so that you can uh, learn a little bit more. Thank you so much, John. And thank you to the Dougie Center for all that you do, continuing to support and care for bereaved families and children. You're an amazing place where people find a lot of hope and healing. Well, we are grateful to be here. And listeners, we are very grateful to you for each time that you show up and tune in to Grief Out Loud. We appreciate you being part of our community. If you would like to share the show with someone who you think might be helped by it, please feel free to pass it along to them. You can reach out to me directly at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. And if you're brand new to our show, you can find all of our past episodes at our website, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G, or wherever you are currently listening to this episode. So thanks again for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>